This is an ABC podcast. She painted extraordinary, abstract and symbolic and deeply spiritual works. It's very mystical, wondrous, secretive work. The artist felt she'd been tasked by the spirits with whom she communed to convey to humanity a secret knowledge of the universe. A painter and her secrets. The spiritual courage of visionary art. Hello, I'm Meredith Lake with Soul Search on RN, and today, the story of a creative on a spiritual quest a medium and a mystic who was quite possibly the mother of European abstract art. A lot of people have never heard of Hilma F. Clint, and yet her work deserves a place up there among the greats in the narrative of art history. It's true that Hilma F. Clint is hardly a household name, But that could be changing very fast, especially now that her paintings, kept secret for decades, are at last being displayed to the public. In 2019, an exhibition of Hilma's work broke attendance records at the Guggenheim in New York. Now they're here, for the first time in Australia, at the Art Gallery of New South Wales. I paid a visit just before the present lockdown in Sydney started, in the company of curator Sue Kramer. So come with us to discover Hilma Afklint and the spiritual impulses that nourished her art. Well, Hilma was a trained artist. She trained at the Royal Academy of Fine Arts in Stockholm and she was publicly known as a... uh, landscape and portraitist. She was very competent and did some very, very lovely works and she earned her living, you know, in that manner. However, in private, from 1906, she started to create what she called the paintings for the temple. And very few people actually in her lifetime saw these works. She was commissioned, she believed, to do these works by a spirit guide named Amaliel. Amaliel was one of a group of spirits that Hilma had made contact with whilst she was a member of a group of women spiritualists called the Five. Now this was a period in the early 20th century when spiritualism was much more widely practiced than it is now. That is the belief that you can contact beings in another world through seance, trance, meditation and other methods. It wasn't a case of contacting people who had died. It wasn't about contacting the dead. It was about contacting spirits who were on a higher plane and who had a higher knowledge of the nature of existence. I would love to hear about this context, the outlook, um, the kind of inspiration that resulted from these interactions that Hilma said she had. 
Can we see, though, one of the early paintings she produced when she started to tune in to the spirits, as she put it? Is there one here that we can look yeah, at? Let's sure. Let's go and have a look. Yeah. So we're in a room now with, oh, there's dozens and dozens of works on the walls. They're kind of poster-sized and they're dated to the first decade of the 20th century. Mm, mm. These works are done whilst Hilma was a member of the group of the five and this was when she was refining her skills as a medium, learning how to receive visions from the spirit guides and to translate them into art. The visions came in the forms of texts and images and in the notebooks that you'll find here in the, the cases there are what we call automatic drawings incredibly intense, bristling with energy, pencil drawings that she and her fellow members of the group did. A lot of them show images that relate to nature because the spirit of nature was very much part of what propelled them forward because they were looking at the realm of the cosmos and the place of humanity and nature within the broader cosmos. So right from the beginning, there was this sense, holistic sense of the wholeness and oneness of humanity and the role of art in revealing that. One of the drawings you can see, the, the letter that stands for each of the members of the group. And it's here in the cabinet. Could you describe it, please? Yes, well, we have Hilma, H for Hilma, A for Anna, Anna Cassell, who was one of her friends, Cornelia, Sigrid and Mathilde, who were all the women who were her friends. And you can see this gush of energy coming from the top right-hand part of the page. And it seems to come forth like a kind of bloom from the skies, speaking to the women. And then in the drawings on the wall, which are collectively authored, but I think were done by Hilma, we start to see colour come into the shapes and forms. And we're still looking at botanical, botanically inspired imagery, but it becomes very abstracted. And we see triangles and lines and spirals and curves and angular forms that suggest like astral forms or things that connect the sky with the earth and a sense of the inner forces, the life forces of nature and the cosmos. That's really what she was trying to reveal. And these are her first experiments in colour. I was reading a little bit about this group, the five. They met together very regularly, I believe, for as much as a decade. This group of women, I suspect, meeting without many people knowing that they were meeting to read a religious text, to pray, to meditate, to kind of attempt contact with higher beings as they saw it. Is this, I guess, an example of a very, almost a kind of secretive women's spiritual group as well as an artistic circle. Yes, I mean, um, spiritualism was a movement at that time. So looking back on it, it seems more strange than perhaps it was at the time. Theosophy, which was the religion that they were 
principally part of, although Hilma was brought up as a Christian and she remained a Christian all of her life, but she drew from many different religions and philosophies and scientific ideas and all kinds of different bodies of knowledge come into her work. So she's never doctrinaire about any of her beliefs. She's very open-minded and draws on a wide range of things, very interested in comparative religion. And that's what theosophy is really known for. It was a religion founded by a woman, Helena Blavatsky, in New York in 1875. And one of its guiding principles was the equality of all different religions and the harmony, that they would all lead to, you know, a similar truth ultimately, which was very progressive and something I think that chimes well with us today as we try to find harmony in our, in our world. So what I'm saying is that the five was not so isolated as we might think. It was quite a current with intellectuals and even scientists at the time were very fascinated by the idea of a world that existed beyond visible reality because at the time there were discoveries such as electromagnetic waves, x-rays, soon the splitting of the atom would give a new sense of what the nature of matter was, that there was forces at play beneath the surface of the visible world and the occult beliefs and scientific beliefs would often interact and validate one another in a sense at a much higher level than they do now you know we're quite suspicious of that sort of thing now and it was also the time when there were new ideas about the unconscious and the depths of the mind this was modernism, and Hilma was part of that. It was about challenging fixed realities and finding new perspectives and new ways of understanding the world. And out of that, she made the most extraordinary art. Wow. Mm. So these are her largest works. Mm. Could you tell us about them? Yeah, well, you'd have to say this room is perhaps the heart of the exhibition. The Ten Largest was her second series within the paintings for the temple. Hilma described it as the evolutionary paintings because they talk about the four stages of man or humankind. So we have two paintings that they're, they're vast in scale is the first thing I should say. And when you walk into the room, you are really very overwhelmed by the presence of these paintings. There is a sense of absolute wonder as to how could these works have existed in 1907, when you think what else was being made at the time. Nothing was being made on this scale in, in the West, you know, I mean, like in terms of abstract painting and these are highly symbolic works as well and she's really invented a whole new abstract and symbolic language and you think well where did this come from it's like it came out of of nowhere extraordinary well, how did she account 
for their emergence <laughs> because, I mean, you're right, they're overwhelming. They're enormous. I mean, mm. we're talking about works that are a couple of metres across. Well, they must be four metres high. And there's, what is there? There's 10 of them. There's 10 of them, the 10 largest, she called them. And the spirits had told her that she would paint paradisically beautiful paintings on the astral plane. And these are the works that eventuated. And they tell the four phases. I'll just come back to that. The childhood, youth, adulthood, and old age. And so like most of Hilmer's work, the theme of evolution and growth and progress and the interconnection of all things is very much at the heart of her vision. And the celebration of colour is crucial to the cosmology that she depicts here. So she accounted for it as they came to her as visions from the spirits. And around this time, she did describe her method as the pictures were painted directly through me without preliminary drawings. I had no idea what they meant, and yet I painted surely and swiftly without changing a brush stroke. We've since discovered that there are some preliminary drawings, but that's how she experienced it, that they were painted with great force, is the other part of that quote, with great force directly through me. So she believed she was channeling the messages that she was receiving from the spirits. Now, from our contemporary perspective, we may feel that this was her way of expressing or finding a realm where she could be free at a time when women were not supposed to be creative. We're not supposed to make paintings like this. That her enormous creativity and artistic vision, she found a space to express it through the realm of spiritualism, which was predominantly a female realm because women were tended to be considered better as mediums because they were more sensitive and receptive to messages. Within spiritualist societies, women could achieve leadership, whereas in other realms they couldn't. Uh, and so all, all throughout her life, she was surrounded by women who supported her endeavours, not without some criticism or fear at some stage around what she was doing, because she was really very brave and stepping outside the norm. But nonetheless, by choosing not to work within the, let's say, male-oriented art structures, she found a realm where her undoubtedly extraordinary artistic vision and spiritual vision was able to be realised. And her conviction carried it through. You're at the Art Gallery of New South Wales on Soul Search today with me, Meredith Lake, and Sue Kramer. 
She's the curator of an extraordinary exhibition, Hilma Arf Klint's Secret Paintings, and as you've heard, they're works of incredible vibrancy and power, born out of what you might call Hilma's spiritual adventurousness or even bravery. And yet, in Hilma's own time, back in the early 20th century, the people who saw these paintings really didn't know what to make of them. Even Hilma's associates, who shared her interest in spiritualism and theosophy, like the philosopher Rudolf Steiner. Well, she felt disappointed by the reception that she'd had. I mean, with Rudolf Steiner, she greatly admired him. He was a mentor to her, and it's often said that he disappointed her and that she stopped painting for four years because of comments that he's, he had made. But that reading of history is being revised, actually, as we speak. And with Hilma, new research is coming out all the time as the notebooks are being translated. So everything is continually being refined. And, and letters have been found that have spoken more of his support for her. But he wasn't as supportive as perhaps she would have liked. She wanted to show her works at his Goetheanium building in Dornach. And, you know, she never had that opportunity. And I think she was hopeful that he might be able to explain her works because she was not sure what they meant. You know, she painted them, but she was really not entirely sure what they meant. And she actually spent the rest of her life trying to discover what it was she had done. And he wasn't able to give her the insight that she had hoped. But yeah, I mean, as far as other painters like Kandinsky and the like, they were not aware of Hilma's work. We believe that Hilma was to a degree aware of theirs. But where she differed from other abstract artists like Mondrian and Kandinsky, who were also interested in spiritualism, is that they weren't mediums. They never claimed that they received their images from higher beings. And I think it's very interesting that it's the woman who deferred her authorship to somebody else or to something else. She felt she needed to defer her authorship in order to express what she had to do. The men wouldn't do that, I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> there was a little too much ego in there, maybe. I mean, Kandinsky was very quick to claim that he had made the very first abstract painting, whereas Hilma, we now think, made the very first abstract painting within Western art. But she wasn't seeking to claim that. She was coming from a different position. Her concerns were with spiritualism and with a message for humanity. And she saw herself in the service of humanity. 
She didn't mention I in her notebooks. She spoke about the work. But in one, she is quoted by her uncle as saying, I am so small, I am so insignificant, and yet in me rushes a force that is so strong that I have to move forward. She saw herself as a vessel for something, mm. is how yes. it sounds to me. That, yes. And not just the vessel of another being, but of a whole vision for what human life and consciousness could encompass. Yes. That she was imagining maybe not a revolution, but certainly an evolution in the nature of, of being. Yes, yes. But she talked about the path to self-knowledge and also the path to cosmic knowledge. She talked about both those things. She knew that it was a combination of receiving her inner seeing, what she saw through the visions, and then her outer seeing was what she saw in the world around her. And that was in science, in nature, in botany, in philosophy, in religion. She was very connected to her time. Well, that's a fascinating point because Hilma did decide, didn't she, that mm. the world wasn't ready to see this work. Mm. I mean, there's more than 100 works. It's a huge body of work, isn't it? It is. To withhold that yes. from public exhibition it's and view. 193 paintings. Goodness. And yeah, we, we don't have them all in the exhibition but 193 paintings is the total body of her paintings for the temple. We have 129 works in our exhibition. So how did she imagine these works coming to light? They're paintings for a temple, they're paintings for the future. Mm. What mm. did she anticipate or hope really for these works? Mm. Well, she had hoped that they would be put on public display. She did have plans to build a temple, that's why it's called the Paintings for the Temple, and the spirits, again, she made a note in her notebooks, had mentioned the temple to her, but the temple never eventuated, and she realised that that wasn't going to happen. She had a couple of opportunities to exhibit her work at spiritualist conferences, but she found the response very disappointing. She comments on her paintings having been dragged through dirt, although she said, but yet they retain their purity. So she still believed in the work, but she felt that they hadn't been understood. And it was really at that point, at age 70, in her early 70s, that she decided that the work should be put aside for 20 years until after her death. And so it wasn't until the 1960s that her family unwrapped the paintings. And after the paintings were unwrapped by the family, they didn't really begin to see the light of day to the wider international art world until the 1980s in a major exhibition called The Spiritual in Art in Los Angeles. And then it's taken this long, or until 2013, before the first major survey of her work, and then the Guggenheim exhibition in 2018 
really put her on the map. This work is called The Dove. Yeah, this whole series is called The Dove. It's a couple of the works within the series actually do show the bird, the dove, the symbolism of the bird as a creature that combines earth, it inhabits both the sea and the sky. So it's a link between upper and lower realms, the spirit and the matter, the physical and the non-physical. Always these discussion of binaries is going on in Hilma's paintings. And uh, she's looking for darkness and light. And she sees one contained within the other. She doesn't see them. They can be in conflict, but then they move towards resolution. So it's a sense of oneness and wholeness. And I guess the Dav is a... Christian symbol of the Holy Spirit. It's also the um, emblem of peace. And here we see it heading towards the earth. So it's heading downwards from the heavens to below. And a really lovely touch that you see beautifully in the actual painting more so than in the, than, than in the reproductions is this beautiful hand, possibly the hand of God or the hand of a being supporting what looks like the wounded wing of the dove, which is really a, a lovely, beautiful gesture. And it's the, the dove sends out rays, like messages ahead towards what looks like the sea below. We can see the waves. So looking at this work, two things stand out to my mm. totally untrained eye. Oh, yeah. One is that it's painted in 1915, mm. which of course is a catastrophic year in the Great War that became mm. known as the First World War. And so the potency of the dove as a symbol stands out to me in that context. You mentioned the suggestion of a sea there too in the bottom segment of the painting. Thinking in terms of the biblical symbolism of a dove, it's also the bird that Noah, I think, sends out from the ark in search of dry land after the great flood that's described in Genesis, which, at least in the biblical narrative, is an act of divine judgment on a warring world. And I mean, it's, it, there's a lot going on, I suspect, in this painting. Yes. Is it also a commentary on her own time? Yes, it could well be, because, it, as you say, it was a very, very turbulent time. And also in the, the series The Swan, there are paintings that we think reflect the turbulence of World War I. So I absolutely agree. And, I, I, you know, I think that in all of Hilma's paintings, there's probably, there's many readings she has her own symbolism that's ongoing, but then she has elements in the painting that come out of the moment in which she paints it. I think that's a very good observation. Finally, Sue, is there a painting in this huge collection that you'd sit in front of all day if you could, um, that you just really love to look at, to reflect on? Do you have a favourite? Tough question, I know. <laughs> there are actually two watercolours at the end of the exhibition, which... 
are self-portraits of Hilma as she gets toward the end of her life, where she reflects upon herself as a mystic and considers her life's mission, really. And the one, I love them both, they're both amazing. The one I'm talking about is from 1934, and it shows Hilma carrying a giant snail on her shoulders, in itself extraordinary. <laughs> the, the creature is wrapped around her in a manner that may remind you of Atlas carrying the globe, bearing the weight of the world. It actually reminded me of all those paintings of, of Mary, of the Madonna. Yes. I mean, it's blue. Yes. And whether yes. there's a gesture there towards other women of huge insight. Yes. yes, yes, yes. And also, that was my next thing as well, that it's also like a halo. And so there's a kind of suggestion that it's perhaps the knowledge that she's born or carried is perhaps a burden and a gift. But yes, you're absolutely right with the blue, the colour of Mary. And because it's light-filled as well, the nature of watercolour gives a luminosity to the picture, which I think gives it an innately spiritual quality, which I think is quite lovely. And then at the bottom of the shell, we can actually also see the snail and its feelers reach out to the heart of the figure. And Hilma talks about the heart as being the centre of her being. The snail has become, by this time, and the spiral, because a spiral for her has become a symbol of spiritual evolution, which is something she refers to throughout her work in reference to humanity. But here, perhaps, is in reference to herself her own journey and where she's travelled to, I think. So it's a very layered and mystical look at her own identity as someone who has been tasked by the higher beings to convey these messages to humanity and what it has taken for her to do that. So you've spent years now thinking about Hilma, about her body of work, her vision and also her reception really. I wonder what your sense is of the way she's being received now. I mean, she imagined our generation, these people in this gallery almost, and yet, as you've also said, as a culture we are perhaps less open to the kind of spiritualist ideas and outlooks that were so fundamental to her. Do you think she's being received as she expected to be or hoped to be? Or is it more of an aesthetic appreciation that we can offer her now? What's your take on, on the reception of Hilma and what it might say about our own, our own moments, our own openness to how we might move through the world? Mm. Well, Hilma could never have imagined really this moment could she? I mean, as much as she had a prophetic eye or mind in some senses, and also we're a lot 
further distanced than 20 years. And most of us are not bringing the framework of theosophy or spiritualism to the paintings. So we are seeing them in quite different ways than perhaps Hilmer had originally intended. But I do like to think that Hilmer was very open. She talked about the vibrations of the mind and the more vibrant the mind could be, the more flexible the world could be. She's used those words. She wasn't about dogma. She was never doctrinaire. And viewers will always, even in her day, they would have brought their own experiences and their own frames of thinking to what they were looking at. And I think that at this moment, many people are looking for something spiritual. I'm not talking about religiosity. Everyone will have a different take. But the works are extremely uplifting, I think. And they do seem to expand beyond the edges of the canvas. And they're very intriguing. We can't explain them away. They are a wondrous phenomenon. And I think that in this world, we're looking for something like that, that connects us to something larger than ourselves. Hilma Afklint, pioneer of European abstract painting and an advocate of what she called the spiritual evolution of humanity. Afklint is the focus of an extraordinary exhibition on now at the Art Gallery of New South Wales, which I had the privilege of seeing in the company of curator Sue Kramer. You know, I only just managed to visit before the COVID situation in Sydney meant the gallery had to close temporarily, but it's been great to take you at least on an audio tour today and do check the gallery website for updates about its reopening. Hilma Afklint, The Secret Paintings, is on at the Art Gallery of New South Wales until at least mid-September. Right now, though, on Soul Search, you're with me, Meredith Lake, and it's true that the spiritualist impulses and movements that nourished Hilma Arf Clint aren't so popular or widespread today. But they have proved influential in all kinds of fields, from the arts to education to contemporary religion. So let's find out a bit more now, especially about anthroposophy. I had to practice saying that word, but it refers to the philosophy developed by one of Hilma Afklin's associates, the Austrian intellectual Rudolf Steiner. It's really a pathway for those who want to understand the world and understand themselves, but from the perspective of the spiritual. So it's really always a path of seeking. It is a knowledge path. It is a knowledge-based path. So it's not a belief but it is about inquiry. A colleague of mine said to me that it's a way of life, how to live and how to see the world, but also how to die, how to change, how to progress, how to move, to let go of the world as much as taking hold of the world. In a way, 
the path of anthroposophy and the path of how one works with it artistically are not really different. It's very much approach of becoming rather than I have become. You don't say, oh, I've achieved this, but it's always this becoming and then dying away and becoming. It sounds pretty wafty, but in actual fact, it's quite a rigorous discipline. Dr Fiona Campbell is a visual artist, primarily a painter. She's also a researcher and an educator with a PhD on creativity and cognition. Fiona grew up in a family that was engaged with anthroposophy, and over the last few decades, Fiona's been a regular teacher at the Rudolf Steiner College in Sydney. Fiona will give us a bit more of an insight into Steiner's thought and how he developed what he called the spiritual science of anthroposophy, But to begin with, Fiona told me a bit more about her art and her creative practice. My approach, which is also very much the anthroposophical approach to painting, is very much about colour. You start working with colour and you allow then forms to emerge and yet you're still consciously working with it. So it's this process of immersing yourself into the experience but then still stepping back to reflect and observe and and allow it. So you might say that when I'm not working on an artwork, even if it's for a couple of months, I'm still in that stepped back stage of reflecting on it and allowing it to mature or to have a process of itself. Fiona, I don't really know what it means to immerse yourself in a colour, as you just said Mm. there. Could you break that down a little bit or talk to me about how you do that? What does that actually mean? Look like. Yeah, I know that's really difficult. And to be honest, I did a painting training in this approach many years ago in England. And when they first start saying to you, you need to immerse yourself in the colour, and you think, what are they talking about? <laughs> you know, and I've seen <laughs> Well, the that's same my thing. question, I've, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and I've seen the same things from when I have students and you say, I want you to experience red. And everyone looks and thinks, well, what does that mean? You know, I'm painting red. But in actual fact, it takes time. The more you work with something, you actually allow it to work upon you. So you might say from a methodological perspective, I'm very phenomenological. It's very much that you live into it. You can become so immersed or absorbed in it that you simply forget time and you find yourself being at one with the artwork that you're creating and then you step back and become yourself again, and then it becomes an object in front of you. It's not just about this is what I want to do to the colour, but it's like you allow the colour to speak to you as to what it would like. That sounds kind of a bit strange, but nevertheless, it's like a two-way engagement with it. It sounds to me like a dance almost of kind of moving closer and moving away again and that At the same time, there's no dance without both you and the work, and yet you're not the work. You're not the work, and yet for a while, you and the work are one. Fiona described her art as anthroposophical in approach, and maybe Hilma Af Klint would have too. But what exactly is anthroposophy? And why has it been so influential in creative fields? For the answer to that, 
we need to go back to the figure of Rudolf Steiner, who's best known today for inspiring the network of Steiner schools. But Steiner's interests went well beyond education to science, the arts, social reform, agriculture, philosophy, and especially to spiritual renewal. He was born in the middle of the 19th century. He was then asked to edit the scientific works of Goethe. This very much influenced his approach. I mean, he was very interested in spiritual things, and of course it was a time in European history and culture where you had a lot of different figures who were coming forward, apart from the theosophists, all kinds of names which have long since disappeared, Gurdjieff and Spensky, and names that mean nothing to us now, but everybody in Europe knew them then. So those people spiritually seeking. And he was very much involved in the Theosophical Society for a long time and became quite a key figure there, but eventually felt that where they were going wasn't the right path for what he thought the modern Western person, for instance, should be taking. One of the reasons why theosophy as a cultural phenomenon is so significant to the cultural history of Europe and the and the so-called West is because of the role that played almost as an interpreter or as a conduit for Eastern religious ideas and concepts to a European and North American audience. Steiner was attracted to the idea of rigour that you mentioned before that he identified in Goethe's works. He was looking for something a little less mystical, if I understand him correctly, something more scientific and perhaps more adapted to the Western context and its own religious traditions. When you read his early writings, they have a more mystical element and then he starts to move away from that. So when you look at the difference between the literal meaning of theosophy and anthroposophy, one is the wisdom of the divine or of God and the other is the wisdom of the human being or of humanity. And rather than being a conduit Rather than receiving spiritual wisdom from the divine or from the gods or or whatever, he saw that as very much belonging to the past and that for the modern Western person, it should be a more conscious path through knowledge and through consciousness and and becoming inquiry-minded and research. So he used to say, don't believe anything I say, go and research it for yourself. It's a kind of spiritual science, would you say? Yes, and yet not science in the way we necessarily think of, but science in the sense of scientific or method, Hmm. experiential and yet also moving always towards knowledge and understanding of oneself and the world, but from the human perspective. It's hard to put a finger on in a way because it is so much about experience. What would you say about your own connection to the movement, if you like, that Steiner started? My mother had come across theosophy herself when she was uh, a young woman. She was working near the Ajar bookshop, which was the theosophical bookshop, and she used to go in and look at things. And then gradually somehow she came to anthroposophy and she must have influenced my father's was before I was born. I'm the youngest of three children. So by the time I was born, I didn't rule their lives at that point. But certainly I grew up in a household where the ideas and way of looking at the world 
was just part of how it is. When you're growing up, you just accept these things. And I went to university, but I also did some anthroposophical trainings. And then I, I worked for a long time as an artist in the anthroposophical institutions and teaching and stuff. So I also moved a bit away from the anthroposophical movement for a while. And I actually did a master's in information science, which eventually led me to doing a PhD. But during that PhD, I was very influenced by Gertian phenomenology. You might say it sort Mm. of brought me back. It gave me a new way, actually, of viewing anthroposophy to really immerse myself then in Gertian science, Gertian phenomenology. It just simply deepened the way that I had worked as an artist for so many years. Having been through that process of re-engagement yourself, I wonder what you would now say about what part of Steiner's thought you find most compelling or interesting or urgent in your own life and practice. I would say what he has to say about thinking. Steiner himself felt that thinking had become increasingly deadened by the everyday dullness of, you know, our ordinary lives, but really that people were having thoughts rather than actively thinking. And I think, you know, when we think about how we live in an age where there's so much misinformation and disinformation and false news, people are finding they don't know what to think, who to believe. And you really have to engage your thinking in ways that people have not necessarily done. We've not been educated to really think critically and about what we're doing and what people are saying and the ideas that are coming towards us. But this way of thinking really needs to be dynamic and creative so that we can respond to the changes that are coming towards us from the future so that we stop relying on thinking in ways that we did in the past to deal with the way the world is today, the problems that come to meet us, but are able to constantly change and adapt and find new ways. Fiona, we talk a lot, I think, about critical thinking, but you're talking about, well, as you've said, creative thinking, dynamic thinking. And I wonder if you see a role for a kind of spiritual breakthrough in creating the possibility of new kind of thinking. Just because when we look back to people like Hilma Af Klint, people like Rudolf Steiner, for them, elevating human consciousness was in a significant way a spiritual task. Yes, absolutely. And although I'm calling it creative, it's still critical. I think this is one of the things that hasn't come up. Anthroposophy doesn't have a dualist mentality. It doesn't see critical thinking and creative thinking as being different. It actually sees that dynamic thinking and live and thinking is both critical and creative. So there's certainly there's a potential for it to, to have that kind of spiritual breakthrough. Mm. It seems to me that the arts and the kind of the creative fields even more generally have been areas of society where theosophy and then anthroposophy have had a very profound impact. Not only Hilmarf Klint, but people like Kandinsky, many of those kind of abstract artists 
were familiar with some of these ideas and movements. Walter Burley Griffin, his wife Marion Griffin, they were very involved in anthroposophy here in Australia in the 20s and 30s. Could you just say more about why you think it's in the creative fields that this has been such an influential way of being? So many artists, particularly the ones you mentioned, they were not just art for art's sake or for self-expression, but as seekers, seeking more, seeking spiritual truths. So they were naturally drawn to people such as Steiner or the Theosophists or that to try and inspire them or help understand or influence their own work. Different aspects attracted different artists. I mean, Joseph Boyce was very much attracted to Steiner's blackboard drawings, the way he used the blackboard to illustrate his thinking process and thought forms, whereas others were more, like Kandinsky, were more interested in his approach to colour. So I think one of the things that perhaps these people have unconsciously tapped into is that the anthroposophical approach to art really sees art as a revitalising and an enlivening force for the human being and will also help develop, and this is where Boyce, I think, particularly was inspired by Steiner, that the arts help develop new ways of seeing and thinking and perceiving the world, but very much this revitalising of the human being in a society and in a world that often has a very deadening effect on our soul and spiritual life. We are obviously living at a time now, Fiona, where, I mean, the pandemic has placed huge pressure on on the arts in all its forms. What's your hope for your own work in this space and for the contribution of artists who are open to the spiritual? On a kind of quite a pragmatic level, I find that art, it's an enormous counterbalance to spending hours and hours on on Zoom, you know, on the computer, on digital technology, it's somehow you feel inwardly revived and refreshed and nourished by it. In a way, you could say it has a holistic or therapeutic effect. But there's obviously more to it than that. One can use it as a path of meditation, you know, rather than meditating using exercises, your work can become a meditative path, but it's also a research path. So it's a whole conduit for exploration and for being able to see the world in a much more enlivened way. I know that if I work very strongly with colours or even I might work with charcoal, light and darkness all day long, and then I'll go out and look at nature or look at the world, and I suddenly the world looks different. It looks clearer, sharper, less dead more alive, even if it might be buildings or something. It's like a kind of a refreshment of my perception, of my my soul. But as I said, for others, it's really to understand the spiritual and to really reach towards spiritual experiences, spiritual understanding. Dr. Fiona Campbell, an artist, teacher and researcher, sharing her insights into anthroposophy. 
It's not a movement we hear all that much about these days, but there's still an anthroposophical society in Australia, and in its heyday, anthroposophy had a significant influence, especially in the arts and among intellectuals. Before Fiona, you heard the amazing story of Swedish painter Hilma Afklint, a medium and a mystic who wasn't just ahead of her time, she produced probably Western art's first abstract painting, and then, for decades, kept it a secret. Hilma Afklint is the focus of a major exhibition on now at the Art Gallery of New South Wales, and when lockdown ends, I sure hope you can see it. For now, though, an audio taste of the exhibition, thanks to the curator, Sue Kramer. If you missed that conversation, just head to the Soul Search website, where you'll also find some pictures and more information. Now, if you're stuck in lockdown right at the moment, or even if you aren't, there's lots to look forward to over the next little while on Soul Search. A memoir of losing faith, a discussion of the experience of atheism, and a conversation about hope with the renowned primatologist, Dr. Jane Goodall. Pre-pandemic, I was traveling around the world 300 days a year about, and my goodness, I met so many incredible people doing amazing things. I saw places that we had utterly destroyed, covered with concrete, give nature a chance and she'll reclaim it. Animals on the very brink of extinction because people care have been given another chance. And then, you know, I started this program for young people, Roots and Shoots, and it's now in over 60 countries with young people of all ages. They are passionate and determined once they know the problems and we empower them to take action. They're changing the world even as we speak. The iconic Jane Goodall on hope and humanity coming up in our next few episodes. You can follow Soul Search as a podcast in all the usual places as well as online and on air with Radio National. I'm Meredith Lake. Thanks to producers Hong Jiang and Karen Tong. And thank you for listening to Soul Search here on RN.